Session 9, 2001, with Hammond and Chamberlain. In this episode, Hammond checks in to do Denver State Mental Hospital with Joel as they discuss the Uber Creepy Session 9. And also, find out why David Caruso makes such a great... Oh, almost let that one slip. Beware. Spoilers ahoy in this one. (laughs) We're back. Are we? Yeah, we're back. Hammond and I are back for this particular bonus episode of the 2014 Spooky Flicks Fast! Fast, fast, fast. You almost sound like you were yawning. <laughs> I was like you went, fast, fast, fast. <laughs> yes, so you and Peter have been involved with three bonus episodes. Again, great company. Yep. This one, though, we've covered, let's see, let's, let's do a real quick recap. Hammond came on to cover we had the five I, I think i just called it five freaky flicks which by the way your episode as, as we're recording this that episode is going out tomorrow just so you know yes uh-huh. a- and so you did your five freaky flicks we'll let everyone listen well hopefully they have listened by the time they're hearing this as we record it but they'll know what those were and then of course you covered the changeling from 1980 right is 80 or 81 80 80 okay 80. and now we're going to do another one that on the surface would appear to be a ghost story. In fact, when I saw it oh so many years ago, that's what I thought it was. It's 2001's Session 9. Mm-hmm. And it's directed by Brad Anderson. Which, let me just add this in real quick. I remember when this movie came out, my only passing familiarity with him was in the more romantic comedy uh, and, and, and very almost indie, quirky romantic, because I think he did Next Stop Wonderland. Prior to yes, this, I think so. Yeah, and he did another movie called Happy Accidents with Vincent D'Onofrio, and I don't remember if it came out before, right before this or after. I don't remember which. But point being is, in my head, I knew of him as an independent filmmaker who seemed to be more in the romantic slash comedy arena. So when I heard he was making this movie, and then I saw the trailer for it, I thought, "Wow, okay, that's interesting. That seems completely outside of what I expected from the guy." But that's what that's why you don't judge a book by its cover, people. Well, right off the bat, I have to mention that there's the glaring CSI connection because it's got David Caruso, who was in CSI Miami, and then it's got the guy who plays Jim Brass in the Vegas one, the CSI crimes, the just a regular one. Full confession, never seen an episode of either. Really? No, and I, and I like a good mystery type show, but for whatever reason, I don't know why, I just never watched CSI. I really liked... Uh, New York mm-hmm. while it was on. And then I enjoyed... That was the one with Gary Sinise, right? Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. And then I really enjoyed uh, Vegas until they hired uh, Sam Malone. Oh, um, brain fart. That's Ted Danson. Yeah. <laughs> it took me a second. I'm like, Sam Malone? And the Karate oh. Kid's wife showed up in it, too. The Karate Kid's wife? Well, you would assume they would have gotten married. Who, Elizabeth Shue? Uh-huh. Well, technically, no, because by R2, she had dumped him. Oh, that's right. See, that's, that's what threw right. me. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. And let's just say this right off. This is probably going to be the most spoilerific 
episode of all the bonus episodes because Tamman and I decided that quite honestly you can't really discuss this movie without giving away some pretty major plot twists. So if truly you haven't seen Session 9, although if you haven't and you were trying to go out there and find it, good freaking luck to you. It was on Netflix streaming for the longest time, but I it's not on there now. And I think Netflix has it as a as a DVD. So if you can if you have Netflix DVD, you can get it that way. It's not currently available at all on Amazon. It wasn't on, it was no, it wasn't on Hulu. It wasn't anywhere. YouTube even, nothing. I own it and it was, and I went, when I was looking for things, I was looking in used bins at local stores mm-hmm. and there were plenty of them in used bins for like five bucks. That's so, the only thing I didn't do. Dang it. <laughs> She's so done what that. I highly recommend doing because it's a solid, solid movie and it's really unsettling as it unfolds. So without, if you haven't seen it, stop. Come back because I promise you it'll be worth the it'll yeah, be worth it. I, I agree with him. And now, as I told him before we started, I had every intention. Most of the bonus episodes, I have high level watch trailers and maybe clips from a movie because you know it was twenty friggin' bonus episodes and time being what it is, you can only see so much. So I wasn't able to watch all the movies that people brought to the table. A lot of them I had already seen, but even if there wasn't, if there was one that I hadn't. I tried to see as much of it as I could. But for this one, I really truly wanted to sit down, watch it like I do for more of the traditional Forgotten Flicks episodes, but I could I literally went to go watch it last night and it's or it was the night before whenever it was. Nowhere. And I was son of a <clears throat> so I'm going purely off memory from 13 years ago and what Wikipedia gave me. Well based on that, do you want to give the synopsis? Oh dear God no. I could give you the the Well you don't want to flip it around and have me give you crap as you're trying to do a synopsis? Oh, I would never give anybody crap as I give a synopsis, Hammond. Okay, so I would say the synopsis is crew of workers who remove asbestos in the Danvers State Mental Hospital, that's what's left of it, begin to experience weird goings-on that lead to a set of audio tapes that were uh, former patients' uh, Therapy sessions, for lack of a better way of putting it, without getting it in any way. And, and it all builds to a crescendo that makes you question the reality of everything that came before it. Very good. Boom. Stamp it. <laughs> the thing that the, there are a few things that stand out in this movie for me. Most of it revolves around that very building. In the making of feature that came on the disc, they talk about how they almost did no set dressing. It was all there as it was found, and so it became this visual document of the building and even its history to an extent, and I find that as interesting, if not more interesting, than the actual movie because they're living in a—they're making you think about it in a real-world setting instead of some weird, creepy ghost universe that, you know, where people don't pay attention to things, and so that's really— that was really interesting, and a lot of the exposition was given through either true historical documentation or it was given through documentation that was presented as it, as if it could have been true, which I thought was really interesting. And I think I mentioned it in my concise synopsis. It's the Danvers State Mental Hospital which also went by the name the State Lunatic Hospital at Danver, Danvers, the Danvers Lunatic Asylum, and the Danvers State Insane Asylum. So, and this this joint is straight up out of every horror movie you've ever seen, what you would imagine a quote-unquote lunatic asylum 
that was built in the 1800s and that more than likely really nefarious, horrific things went on inside would look like. And it's a real place. Even the name of it sounds like it should be in a Stephen King novel. Oh, yeah. It, it just it's so unsettling to look at. And I've always been fascinated by urban exploration. And I think it was it was definitely after I had seen Session 9, but I remember I came across some site where these people would go you know, break into different places and they would take their pictures or, or whatnot. And I think Danvers was one of them. And man, oh, it is creepy because <laughs> there's still like bed frames and filing cabinets filled with records and documents. It just all it's all very post-apocalyptic. Well, a lot of the building was torn down shortly after the movie was completed. And so very little of it actually remains as a, a monument or as evidence it even existed. But do you know what it is now? It's like condos and stuff, isn't it? A former insane asylum turned into apartments. You moved the headstones, but you didn't move the bodies. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You got to be kidding me. <laughs> yeah. There's a city planner who's not sleeping well at night. Uh, yeah. I don't know why people keep disappearing at the old Danvers apartment complex. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things this movie, and I, I realized it was a theme in the two movies I actually picked, was that it plays with the fragile and the broken and the damaged person. Because in this particular movie, and I remember we're spoiling things, the, the man who kind of owns the asbestos removal company has had... An incident that happened, we'll, we'll get into that in a second, and he has become fractured. And be, even because of the stress of the job, he was fractured because even before his incident that really sent him spiraling, the, the main malignant spirit, Simon, reached out to him and said, Gordon, you can hear me and you know who I am. So... As a story unfolds and you start hearing the hypnotherapy tapes of Mary Hobbs and you introduce to her, her internal people, uh, Princess, Billy, and at the end, Simon, who is the malignant spirit, he, you start having these things unfold in parallel as Mary's talking about them and then as they're happening with Gordon. And it's really, the pacing of this film is so strange and so unsettling and so different from a lot of other horror movies and any other movies that by the time things start rolling near the end, like the last five, seven minutes of this movie, it all just kind of rolls out. You're so unsettled that by the time it rolls out, you really have a what the hell just happened mentality when the credits roll. Here's the thing. I've heard people knock this movie because... They find it to be maybe too much of a slow burn there. It, it, as you pointed out to me prior to us recording the violence up until a certain point is very minimal. And so, and there's very minimal gore. So it's not definitely just like the pacing. It is not your quote unquote typical horror flick, but it is straight up atmosphere and tone. And if that's the kind of thing that gets you, if you like a good creepy, creepy movie, this would work. But here's what I would like to say. And anybody that's like, Oh, yeah, that movie didn't scare me. <laughs> Whatever. All I ask is this, get yourself a copy of it, get yourself like an old, yeah, you'd want a color one, but like an old Zenith, you know, cathode ray tube TV and an extension cord. And I want you to find an abandoned hospital asylum <laughs> and I want you to go in or 
urban exploration style at night. And I want you to plug that sucker and find some, you may have to bring in some kind of battery backup power kind of thing. Cause you know, probably won't have electricity in there. Cause you know, it's abandoned. And I want you to watch this movie while sitting in a hall with all those doors open near you, behind you, lots of space behind you where something could theoretically just creep up and then come back and tell me this movie didn't scare the crap out of you. My point being, I think it's creepy. And by the way, just, just, just real quick. Um, don't actually do that. I was just joking. Uh, if anybody does that and something bad happens, it's on you, not me. Continue, Hammond. I was actually going to say another really solid challenge, though, is put it on your laptop, plug in a pair of really good headphones, mm. and watch it. In the dark. Because I got to tell you, the sound design on that gets in your head. Mm. There's all kinds of stuff going on in the movie sound-wise. Mm. Because I've never, I never watched it that way. I watched it just, you know, TV. And I wouldn't have heard it if it hadn't been on my surround sound and I was listening particularly to see how it was presenting itself in your head. So do you want to maybe without, you know, on a high level kind of go through? Okay, so we start off with the main character and what was his name again? Gordon. Okay, Gordon. If I remember quick, is not the opening scene him sitting in his car outside of his house? No, it's actually him sitting in his, his work van right before they walk in for the first time to get a tour of the building to bid on the job. Okay. Okay. I remember him being in a van or yeah. his vehicle, whatever. So, but why I had it is at some point in the movie later on, he outside of his house. Yeah. They show that scene a few times because what happens is he and David Crusoe's character, Phil go and walk through with Jim Brass from CSI. I don't know his name in the movie, but he's Jim Brass from CSI. And they, he gives them a little bit of historical stuff. He explains why they need to have the place de-asbestized. <laughs> That's a word I just made up. Yeah, I like it. And uh, they go through and make the bid. And he gives them this ridiculous, almost unobtainable bid because he really needs a job. Mm-hmm. So it starts showing that there's a lot of stress just with him because if he doesn't get his job, maybe his livelihood is done. Mm-hmm. So he goes home and he has flowers and a bottle of wine and some Oreos, which actually play as a weird thing later in the movie. And he is looking at the window of his van across the street from his house and he sees the dog and his wife and this brand new baby. And they focus in on this boiling pot of water. And the first time you see it, it cuts to black and you hear these strange kind of shocking noises and you think, oh, it's just typical horror movie doing the shocking noises when you go to black, blah, blah, blah. Well, here comes the spoilers. Really what happened is he knocked over the water, burned his leg, lost his temper because he'd already been touched by the malignant spirit, and murders everyone in the house. But we don't know that until the end. Now, just to clarify, because obviously we're now full on spoiler territory, that's the big sixth sense-like twist at the end. Yes. You took away from the movie that, in fact, there was a legitimate malignant spirit that affected him causing the chain reaction of death and destruction because going purely on memory was that was the initial implication. But in fact, you could just as easily have taken it as no, the guy went off his rocker due to stress and went on a rampage. The only reason I say that the implication is that it's a real thing is because it was on tape with Mary and then at the end of the movie, after everyone's dead and you're flying over the building, away from the building, it's talking and it says, I live in the broken and the damaged. And it kind of leaves like it's flying away to find more people. 
That's true. And I think you could make the argument that if it isn't something connected to that, it's a one hell of a coincidence that a guy who would go on to do that to his family found these tapes, unless it was all in his head. Those tapes even. I mean, I guess you could make that argument that it was all in his head. The tapes are found by a different worker and was being listened to in parallel to what was going on with Gordon. So Gordon wasn't the one listening to him. Oh, see, I'd forgotten that. Who was the one listening to him? Mike, the wannabe attorney guy, the smart one in the group. That's right. Okay, well, there you go. Yeah, for the, so you could make the argument that it's just a big coinky dink, but I think that's that's a in a, in a real twist. That's more of a stretch <laughs> <laughs> as far as how you could take it as a story goes versus okay, there was actually something to it. There's something living in the walls of this place that attaches itself to this guy due to his more broken internal workings versus the other way, which is, oh, they found these creepy tapes or listening to him. And, oh, what a quinky dink. It has something to do with, uh, you know, something similar that happened in both situations. Yeah. And there's a lot of parallel things that happen where you see, you know, you learn Mary Hobbs's name and then you see her inmate or not inmate, her, her uh, resident number. And you see the room where she was staying, and that's the room where he ends up at the end of the movie, and it's tied to that. And at one point, he's sitting on a dead tree uh, talking on a cell phone to what you would think would be his wife, but we are we find out later she's been dead for like three days. Mm-hmm. And he's kind of very fractured from what reality is and what is actually happening and then what's going on in his head. It's this three-sided problem that he's facing and the tree happens to be right over the headstone of Mary Hobbs. Mm. So it's all very parallel and it's all very connected. And it's the kind of movie that when you watch it once, you do want to go back and watch it because there are clues all throughout the movie that lead you to the, the right conclusion. It's just that the first time you're watching it, you have no idea what the conclusion is going to be. Hmm. Yep. Yet again, underlining my disappointment with the fact that I didn't get to watch it. (laughs) I love the fact though, they, they, they give these guys kind of a high stress situation with the asbestos, which is, you know, teetering with their own lives. And it's, it really does create an atmosphere of, of a lack of safety. And then you add this thing that's happening at the same time you get, and then you add the the job and the need for money and all that kind of stuff, all in with the atmosphere and the pacing, and you get yourself a very effective piece of storytelling. Oh, absolutely. Did you see this? You just, I'm assuming you saw it originally when it came out on video? Yeah, I saw it in 2001. I think I got it the day it was released on disc and went home and watched it that evening. How I, many times have you seen it? Oh, gosh. Maybe five more, five or more. Oh, wow. in that. Okay. It, I've watched it enough that I've actually started studying other things that are not quite as obvious. Yeah. I just noticed last night that the actual, that Simon leads to the discovery, the malignant spirit leads to the discovery of the tapes of Mary Hobbs. How's that? Because, well, the, the, the mic has to go down to pl- replug in all the, power that they've unplugged by accident. And when he does, this light turns on in an adjacent room away from where he was needed to go. So he goes into that room 
to see what the light's all about. And as he's walking through, he hangs it, and he opens up a box, and the light turns off. And as he closes the box, the light turns back on, and it's right next to a box marked evidence, and it's sealed. And as he pulls the box down, the light gets brighter. And then as he cuts open the box, things happen to all the people on his crew. So it's like he's opening Pandora's box, kind of, and releasing this thing. And he starts listening to the tape. So it seems as if this thing wanted to be discovered and set free. Now, you had mentioned prior to us recording Mr. Caruso. Yes. And his quality as a red herring. Oh, well, yeah, because, okay, so he plays a major jerk. And uh, not major jerk. He actually plays kind of a guy who's on edge, and he's a little bit shifty, and he's a little bit... He doesn't seem to be the clean upstanding guy that Gordon does. And it's not until the last, I'd say seven minutes of film that you realize that you've been led down a path to think that Phil, the David Crusoe character is the malignant thing. And all of a sudden it starts to unroll and you realize that you've been duped very well. And it was it's that was actually the biggest shock for me. I didn't care that the spirit had taken over Gordon. I was just shocked it wasn't Phil. Yeah, I remember the ending being a pretty big surprise. I think it was well played that it all the whole idea of it turning in on itself and discovering that all these little clues had been given throughout with Gordon and it was very it was very reminiscent of that sixth sense sort of every piece coming together or the others. As, as you mentioned in your Five Freaky Flicks episode, where everything sort of comes together at the end, you're like, oh. Yeah, this one happened so hard, though, it actually kind of hurt the head when you start, when they start flashing through and showing it. It actually was very disconcerting and it was very unsettling because you thought you kind of knew where it was going. And then it turned sideways on you and it really, it really is shocking. Which I, I guess for that reason, if you're somebody who doesn't like, to be toyed with that way. I, I suppose I could see that general sense of frustration or annoyance someone might have with things turning in on themselves like that. That being said, though, I only get frustrated with it when it feels like a cheat, when it feels as if they cut a corner or when you just examine it for two seconds, you're like, wait a minute, that can't be right. If that's true, then this wouldn't have happened, etc. And as I recall, this movie doesn't have that. No, it's very clean because when you go back and watch it again, knowing what's going to happen and you're looking for holes, there are a couple places where I was actually, okay, so how did this happen? How do they explain this off? Are there any, are there any hints to this thing? And I was paying strict attention to those last night when I watched it. And sure enough, they really do cross their T's and dot their I's as far as storytelling goes. It's interesting now as you're describing things, and again, since I'm going purely on memory, my memory was in the end, this would be fall way more in the psychological thriller, which it is category, but that the supernatural while suggested in the end was in and of itself a red herring. So the fact that you've pointed these pieces out really, when I do finally go back to watch it again, because my wife really loved it too. So she was disappointed that I couldn't find it. So eventually we will rewatch it. And when we do, I want to make sure to pay attention to that aspect of it. It's really subtle, and when it starts to play out, again, like you said, it's not one of those things where you're totally sure 
you can believe everything you think about it and that you saw. One of my favorite images and and plot not plot points sections of the film is the youngest kid, uh, Gordon's nephew, is afraid of the dark, and it's a story point that he brings up early in the movie, and he goes down through these tunnels, and at this point the malignant spirit has split the four of them up so that they're each on their own and can be exploited for their weaknesses. One guy's afraid of the dark, the other guy's his curiosity, the other guy is kind of broken with sanity, and the other person is trying to take control of the situation. So they've all been split up. And this kid gets trapped in a long tunnel with a row of lights, and the generator craps out. Oh, and yeah, I he starts that. he starts running from the darkness. And it's such a great parallel to the fact that the darkness is actually filling in all of it. Not just this particular visual, but it's creeping in on all of them and taking over. Because it's right before that scene. That scene is the starting point of this last five to seven for the film where everything gets unfolded. And the reason I mentioned the Oreos is because the kid runs out. He's free. He's in the sun. He's sweaty. He's dirty. He's coughing up all this stuff that we assume is probably asbestos junk. So he's not going to be long for this life anyway because uh, mesothelioma is going to kick in probably not too long after that. And he's cramming these Oreos that he found into his mouth and he turns up and he sees someone coming and goes, oh man, I got trapped down there and it was dark and I got scared and I hope you're okay with it, but I found these in the van and then it cuts to black. And then they start to unroll everything that's happened as this voice of Simon is talking. And they did such a great thing with the recordings. They have them on reel to reel and they're a little bit worn down and they're a little bit garbly. And it creates such a disturbing, unsettling kind of audio experience to listening to them. Because you know it just sounds like an old, worn-out tape. I guess there's something about that idea of finding, or in the, you know, in the case of Exorcist, having some audio of something really disturbing. So your mind is filling in all of the points because obviously you don't see anything you're just hearing things and there have been a few things i found either on youtube or just online in general where supposedly they've got audio recording of some disturbing thing that happened and you listen to some of it and that to me can some it oftentimes be worse than seeing something because it's so freaking creepy <laughs> oh most definitely and also your brain starts doing things with what, what it's hearing and involuntarily starts putting images with it. Yeah, it, it just, I, I I remember that element of Session 9 being really effective. The voice on the tape was disturbing the way it would shift around. And it was almost that idea when you think of someone who is uh, possessed and they speak in tongues or they have different personalities that come out and they go from sounding like a child to an old man or something. That same, I seem to remember that there was a pretty significant shift between the different personalities that Mary Hobbs had. But the thing is, though, is that the first two, Billy and Princess, sounded like they could have been the same person. And then Simon kicked in at the end, and it's clearly something different. And it goes back to your point, which is there was something to Simon. Yes. But they also use that image, that, that, that thing where we create an image in our head because they let us hear Mary for a very long time before they showed us a picture of her. And whatever we had in our head was not going to be what that picture was. So they even did something simple as jarring us with that. And I don't remember. What did she look like? 
She's just some kind of sad middle-aged woman. Yeah, I remember it wasn't like you expected it to be something extreme. At least I seem to remember that being the case, right? Isn't yeah, that... she's just some just normal-looking, sad, you know, woman. But it was different than what you expected. And when you saw it, it it still caused you to be jarred a little bit because it was different than what you were expecting to see. Yeah. It's funny because at the end, the only gore we see is actually the aftermath of the attacks. Well, I take that back. There is one... Uh, I don't even know the name of the tool. It's, it's like the, orbit to something because I looked it up and it was. Yeah, it's the thing they do the uh, lobotomies with. And they show that going out of a guy's head and then into another guy's head. And there's no blood. It's just the actions. And the only time you see blood and gore is the aftermath of the, the murderous rampage that Gordon goes on with his coworkers, not even the wife and kid and the dog. And it's, I mean, it's very effective because it's enough to know that it was a very personal, uh, gratuitous, out of control kind of event, but you don't see it. And you just see these puddles of blood around and you see the bodies and how they've been just kind of thrown into these rooms. It's really, really effective because you're not expecting gore because you've been sitting for 90 minutes with not seeing any. And then when you do, it's just enough to make you kind of feel, wow, I just saw a lot of violence, but. You really didn't. It's very uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre in the way it plays with your brain. Yeah, I think that's a good comparison. Yeah, it's almost as if you're just witnessing the crime scene. Yeah, like you walked in on it. Yeah. So do you have any final notes, ideas, thoughts? Well, I was going to say that I think that the guy who found the tapes, Mike, and the reel-to-reel probably should have taken the reel-to-reel home with the tapes and listened to them there. For what reason? It would have been a lot less creepy listening to them in your own house than they would have been sitting in the basement of a abandoned mental asylum. True, but I also would make the point that wouldn't have really worked as well for the movie. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, and, and one thing I do have to say is they were very conscious of light and dark, so it wasn't the the dumb guy walking into a darkened area just because he didn't want to turn the lights on. There was an actual explanations for where there was light and when there wasn't light. So that part about the, hey, we're uh, going to be dumb and just walk into a darkened house and let things scare us. Yeah. That wasn't there. That was an actual, they actually used light and dark very logically and sensibly in this film. Yeah, I think that's always a knock on horror films when you have the lack of logic and proper character motivation. You know, you need the... The filmmakers, the storytellers thinking, okay, well, we need this character to get from point A to point B, so we're just going to have them do this thing that's going to cause the audience to be like, you moron, whereas yeah. this movie has it built in, so that doesn't happen. Yeah, exactly. Hammond, my friend. Yes, sir. I want to thank you. Three in a row, well, not in a row, but three <laughs> bonus episodes that you've taken part in. They've all been very enjoyable, insightful, educational uh they made me happy so hopefully everybody out there is happy do you have any final things you want to say this being your last bonus episode i want to thank you for having me on uh even one of them let alone three and uh i i feel a very strong sense of pride to have been involved with this year's spooky flicks fest well as you should 
<laughs> no, I, it is the honor is mine. I'm seriously, I'm flattered that everybody agreed to do any of these because, you know, it takes time and people have other things going on in their lives. And I appreciate that. I have learned valuable lessons, which is a, I was capable of orchestrating some ridiculous amount of things. And that's great. Don't know that I'll do that again. Cause as it turns out, it's kind of a lot of work, <laughs> but it has been a very, very fun experience for me. It, it was fun to have the opportunity to talk to everybody. So I thank you for doing this. I thank everybody for doing this and be sure to tune in. There's a few more bonus episodes after this one to come. And then the grand hurrah on Halloween day, we're going to release the final movie oriented podcast for all of Forgotten Flicks, because the one after that will be a couple weeks later, and that'll be Jason's and my final hurrah. So actually, if you're listening to this, haven't had a chance yet, please go ahead and call in to the voicemail feedback line, wherever the hell it is. I don't even have the number in front of me, but it's on the site, ForgottenFlicks.com. Go there. It's in the sidebar. Call, leave a voicemail message, as Hammond has done. I did. It, it was hard to hold back the tears. I'll be honest. You're so full of crap. No, I really, it was an emotional, <laughs> I had to record it four times. I'm serious. Like, I'm going to make it a point. I, I'm trying to think what I could do. I might be just like have like a, a lighter and just occasionally just flick it open and just burn the palm of my hand throughout that episode so I don't get emotional. You know, just kind of like cause myself insane pain, like have this negative reinforcement thing going on. You will. Oh, you feel like you're going to cry? Really? Really? Ow! So if you hear random sizzling sound, that'll be me burning my own flesh. No, it was. I actually took me. A number of tries before I got through it without sounding like a complete sap. No, that's okay. I understand. Thank you, my friend. Have a happy yep. Halloween, which I think I've told you in every single one of them. Yeah. <laughs> so for the third time. Well, I think it's because every time you thought it was going to be the last. It probably is. Yeah. I was like, hey, I'm going to do one more. Oh, sure, man. Why not? <laughs> so this, this is, in fact, the last one. So Hammond, have a happy, happy Halloween. And you too. Thank you for joining us for this special bonus episode of the 2014 Spooky Flicks Fest. And a special thanks to Hammond Chamberlain for all of his excellent contributions. Be sure to check out Beyond the Playlist with J. Hammond's C. and iTunes, Hammond's excellent podcast. Looking for more spooky fun? Why not head on over to ForgottenFlicks.com where you can sign up to receive free updates and something horrific delivered to your inbox every day in October. See you soon. <laughs>